Hello, friends. Welcome to Gratitude, a podcast about love, resilience, empathy, compassion, hope, and wisdom, all tied in one. I'm your host, Chris Atageka. I'm an engineer, a TED speaker, and an entrepreneur. Each week, we invite inspiring, successful guests to share stories that celebrate, reflect on, and give gratitude to people in their lives, past and present, whose shoulders they stand on. Speakers also get to share nuggets of wisdom learned from these heroes that fueled their success. Our listeners get to walk away with practical advice and apply it in their own lives. Our guest today is Dr. Moriba Ja. He's an American space scientist and aerospace engineer, known for his contributions to orbit determination and predictions, especially as related to space situational awareness and space traffic monitoring. Dr. Jaw is a professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at University of Texas, Austin. His research interests, among many things, focuses on object tracking and prediction in space. So simply put, he spends a lot of time thinking about the idea of space sustainability and studying the effect of human-made objects orbiting up in this space and their effect on humanity, our planet, and beyond. Dr. Joe, welcome to the show. Chris, this is a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate that. So let's dive right in. So a lot of us are not space scientists, so uh, space seems a little alien, a little kind of out there for us. Um, <laughs> I would love for you to give us a little crush course on uh, on space and and the idea of these human-made objects that are kind of circling the world on every day and even right now. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, humanity started launching stuff into orbit around 1957 with uh, Sputnik and uh, that one object being launched basically ushered in an era of humans putting stuff uh, in space. And right now, we, uh, we track about 26,000 uh, human-made or anthropogenic space objects uh, in various orbits around the planet, um, ranging in size from a cell phone all the way up to the space station. And of these uh, 26,000 objects, roughly about 3,000 or so are things that work, meaning that they provide services and capabilities that we depend upon daily from uh, position, navigation, timing, banking, uh, you know, weather warnings, all these things. And uh, the rest of the objects, the, non, the rest of the non-3,000 are just things that are dead, uh, pieces of debris, junk. Uh, in these orbital highways, uh, uh, you know, mo- most of which are, are up there, you know, in perpetuity. Wow. Wow. So for us, a normal human, uh, when you think about that, and it's just like a bunch of metal and rocks and things uh, out there in the space, uh, is, are humans in danger of these objects? 
Yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, um, you know, we have humans on board the space station uh, now. In fact, I think the uh, I think the running tally is we've had humans in space for about 20 years now, mm-hmm. uh, which is quite a bit. And yeah, these people are in harm's way every you know minute to minute, hour by hour, because, you know, I, I said we track about 26,000 things. But what I didn't say is that we only track about 1% of these, you know, anthropogenic space objects that could cause harm because things that are smaller than a cell phone, we can't track, but they're still up there going at very high relative speeds, you know, up to 15 times the speed of a bullet. And as we know, bullets are small, but can do lots of damage because they have a lot of energy. Hmm. And so the same thing with uh, even something as small as a, as, a, as a fleck of paint, a chip of paint, uh, hitting hitting an astronaut suit uh, at at the at the right time and and the right speed could uh, could actually wreak a lot of havoc. Wow, wow! So people who keep sending stuff into space, uh, uh, sometimes they do it in the name of innovation, and sometimes they do it in the name of making our lives better, easier, faster, efficient. Um, and one specific example is. Uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk. Uh, Elon Musk has this company called Starlink. And for those of you who may not know what Starlink is, uh, it's a satellite internet constellation uh, that's being constructed by SpaceX to provide satellite internet access. So basically, it's just a bunch of, you know, mass-produced small satellites or small drones in low orbit that are sent out into space in thousands just to uh, be able to provide internet to the world. So from a positive, he can make an argument that he's trying to get internet to, uh, to everywhere and, and, and to everyone who needs it. But on the other hand, um, as an individual, when you're looking up, uh, normally, you're looking up uh, on a clear night without night pollution. You can see the stars and, and stargazing. Sometimes it's an amazing thing that a lot of people do. But with thousands of these drones into space, that will be affected. So I just want to get your thoughts as you know uh, uh, on, on the idea of, of having these um, satellite constellations up there. Yeah, so you know, I uh, I think you did a great job of of, of describing that, Chris. Um, so I I said we track about twenty six thousand things, just with uh, the proposed constellations in the next five to ten years. The proposal is to have about you know twenty to thirty thousand satellites, hmm. uh, which would double double the the population of of tracked objects and. Here's here's the thing, right? Uh, just like you said, you know, global internet. There's a benefit to that. I think most people don't realize that probably about half of the world's population doesn't have internet mm-hmm. uh, for a variety of reasons. And you know, uh, information is definitely uh, advantageous to have in many respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you and and so empowering people with information. Is important, but at the same time, you know, you have astronomers who are not happy with these objects now reflecting sunlight and corrupting their telescope images 
because now that's you know clutter. They have to try to see through that to to things that are of interest. So there's a, a definite impact to astronomy and science as a consequence of launching more things. And it's not like it's an inclusive dialogue in the sense that you know nobody's going to you or or to me to ask us, hey, you know, uh, would you be willing to trade your your night sky? Uh, and seeing things zipping around all the time uh, for internet, for this global internet, right? So, so nobody's really asking us that question. That's not part of the regulatory or licensing framework, uh, as it were. So I think, I think that's something that uh, I feel is an issue. And I also have to say that just like we humans have polluted the oceans uh, with microplastics and all this other stuff and, and land and the air, we're doing something similar to near earth space. So all of space may be infinite, but near earth space is finite and we don't put things just anywhere. We put things on very specific orbital highways. Uh, and these things are getting more kind of cluttered with debris and there's no kind of environmental impact assessment. You know, we, we have global organizations that talk about long-term sustainability and, have provided guidelines for people to uh, help mitigate more, more, more debris, more junk. I mean, much like the uh, pandemic is going on now, um, we talk about flattening the curve on the growth of debris. And just like on Earth, you see uh, a spike in the spread of uh, COVID because people aren't social distancing and all these other things. Well, in near Earth space, we see a spread of debris, a growth in debris, because people are not complying with these guidelines. And, and there's a couple of super spreader events, which are big rocket bodies that are pretty much ticking time bombs. And when, when two objects collide, they become many smaller objects. So these big dead rocket bodies left in uh, various orbits, they either explode uh, due to old age or something collides with them and then they you know, become many smaller pieces and I call these super spreader events. So that's uh, to the detriment uh, you know, of the space environment. Wow, 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 wow. So uh, who, who is the police? Who is the space police? I mean, for someone who is a, a, a regular person is like, yeah, space is out there. I kind of don't really understand. Um, who who is in charge of providing the space vacuum if you will like the space roomba to like pick up all this debris when it's it's left out there who who is the police yeah so so the answer is there is no police uh there's lots of space traffic but we don't have global agreed upon space traffic rules we don't have a common set of norms of behavior in space so so the outer space treaty uh, which was ratified, uh, you know, back in late sixties by over a hundred countries that gives some, uh, some legal framework, some legal instrument to, uh, you know, broad brushstroke. This is how, you know, you should use space only for peaceful purposes and these sorts of things. But the interesting thing, Chris, is that even though you have a common document that's been signed and ratified, the interpretation and the implementation of these legal instruments is not common. Like mm. everybody doesn't interpret and apply them the same way. And so I think that's part of the problem in that 
we don't fully know and understand how people are implementing this. So that's step step number one needs to be monitoring and assessing how people are either complying or not complying or implementing this stuff, taking into account cultural, uh, you know, cultural nuances in this interpretation and then saying, okay, so this is how we're all kind of behaving. Uh, these things say that we can kind of do whatever we want, but it's a, it's a global commons physically in that sense, not legally, but it, it's a physical commons, meaning it's a finite resource that we're each utilizing to, to you know, however we, we want. But, but the way we're utilizing this finite resource is in the absence of coordinating with each other and understanding how each other is going to behave. And so that makes it into a really complex system, right? When you have uh, small, small causes can have very large effects and you have a group of participants each making decisions in, com- in pretty much complete ignorance of the decisions that other people are making. And so that, that's just a recipe for disaster. So, so I guess the key component that I'm still having a hard time grappling with is who, who takes the ownership of being the referee or being the umpire to say, um, you know, because people who send stuff in space are these giant private companies that are very highly funded by very powerful people who are kind of untouchable, or they're state actors that are, you know, it's a country uh, that's running a program in space or sending a satellite into space. Um, who would be the person or the entity? Is it the UN or is it someone who can say, I'll go and, you know, hypothetically stage, you know, have an office in, in, in stage and, and keep monitoring and evaluating who is doing wrong and kind of hold them accountable. Like who is, who is that entity? So the answer to your question is nobody, nobody. That's the, depressing. The, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the thing is, the Outer Space Treaty pretty much says that nation states um, are liable for any damage that might occur. And as long as the use of space is peaceful, uh, it's unhindered. Like, you can pretty much do as, anything you want so long as you're not harmfully interfering others and you're using space for peaceful purposes. Now, clearly... You know, it's not like that's well defined, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and so, there's you can drive a truck, uh, you know, through through those words kind of thing in terms of, you know, interpreting that. And the UN does have an office of outer space affairs, where people talk about maybe some guidelines and these sorts of things. Again, the the very things that uh, not everybody has been complying with and that sort of stuff because these guidelines in and of themselves are not legally binding. They're merely suggestions. So, so the world does not have, uh, you know, an international uh, entity that is for all intents and purposes the space traffic monitor and cop. And, and the closest thing to that man, uh, believe it or not, is the U S department of defense, which I can tell you many countries are not happy with that situation, right? They don't want to see the U S department of defense, trying to be the lead in this sort of uh, endeavor because, well, I mean, it, it can't be a fully transparent organization kind of by definition. But also they would have assumed that they 
have the power to own space, which is a whole other conversation. So, so tell me, where's the hope? Where's the hope? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your work and uh, anything else that comes to mind of like, you know, because if, if anybody and anyone can just throw stuff in space and uh, at some point, you know, nothing, nothing uh, goes up forever. It goes up and has to come down at some point. Um, what are, where, where do you see the hope? So here's, here's the hope. Um, so unfortunately the, the, what, what goes up must come down, uh, only is true if it's in low earth orbit, but if it's beyond that, uh, what goes up kind of can stay up, uh, forever. Unfortunately, that's part of the problem. And the, the hope is this, right? Um, if we want space to be safer, more secure and sustainable, my belief is that we have to do things, we have to behave in ways that make space more transparent. Uh, you know, what's up there? Who does it belong to? What can it do? We need to find ways to make space more predictable. Uh, what, what is the relationship between all these objects and, and participants? Uh, not just now, but, you know, over the next few hours, days, weeks, that sort of thing. Mm. And then lastly, can we develop a body of evidence that is globally accessible to hold people accountable for their behaviors. And so, so my work specifically is really related to those three uh, measuring sticks, if you will. I'm, do, I'm conducting transdisciplinary research uh, you know, at the University of Texas at Austin and coming up with methods and tools to make space more transparent, to make space more predictable, and developing evidence that could be used to hold people accountable for their behaviors. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we are all going to be sitting and 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 uh relying on on your work and your team. So, uh keep up keep up with that good work. So, I want to um switch gears here a little bit. As you know, this show is about celebrating and giving gratitude to people in our lives who have loved us and supported us and nurtured us and believed in us. Um, and as a person who has, you know, worked really hard, but also gotten to the position you're in right now and in a position of, of power and, and also, uh, you know, creating significant, um, uh, meaningful contributions to, to humanity there gotta be somebody in your life who whose shoulders you stand on and the people who have supported you uh, to get here. So in your earliest memories, what are some of those people uh, starting with your earliest memories and then we can talk about a few along the way. So uh, to you now, tell me some memories of a person in your life or a person's or people in your life whose shoulders you stand on. Um, I, I would be remiss, uh, to not mention probably what, what is maybe obvious and common to most people, but, uh, you know, I would say my mother for sure. Mm. Um, you know, my, my mother, uh, she, she, she was from Haiti. My father was from Sierra Leone. Um, you know, they had me in San Francisco, but, uh, things did not go so well, uh, early on. And so they got divorced when, um, you know, I was uh, two years old. And so my mom became the single parent and things were very difficult for, for, for us and our lives. And 
she always went out of her way uh, to support me. And so, so for sure, uh, you know, the, 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 the main lighthouse and beacon of my soul uh, in my life has been, has been my mother. Um, not, not here with me since 2001, uh, August 20, 29th of 2001. But uh, um, so I miss her uh, tremendously. But f- for sure, she was, um, you know, my biggest supporter. But then we had some family friends. In fact, this couple, uh, Maurice and Martha Van Zabruck, and um, Maurice was, I believe, an ambassador to Belgium in Haiti. And he uh, helped my grandparents immigrate to the United States, uh, you know, back back in the 60s or, or, or 50s or 60s. And they lived in Monterey, California. My mother, my grandmother uh, taught Haitian and French to soldiers at the Defense Language Institute there in Monterey. So he, he helped her land the government job, uh, which was quite good for my grandparents, for sure. Hmm. And clearly it, it benefited me. But um, Martha always treated me with respect. You know, I was born in 71, man. And so it's like in, in, uh, in those days, kids really didn't have opinions or the rights to opinions or the rights to really feel anything or you, it was, everything was pretty much prescriptive. Like I came from the hard knocks kind of, you know, your, your opinion is what you're told it is kind of thing. And, uh, whenever we went to visit Martha, man, um, and this was be- between the ages of like two and seven. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember very much enjoying being in her company cause she always took time to go away from the adults and come to the children's table and ask me if I needed water, how did I feel? And it was genuine, you know, she wasn't just like checking a box. And I have to tell you, man, um, I don't know why I'm so, I'm, I'm still surprised by it, but it's, it's a strong, it's a strong, uh, piece of compassion that I can hold on to even at this age. And, you know, I'm about to turn 50 here soon. And it's like, I can still remember Martha and her compassion towards me in those days. Wow. Wow. Um, your mother, and I'm sure she's looking down and very proud of the man you've become. And, 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 and Martha, um, you know, I, I also have a Martha in my life. Uh, uh, she's uh, my adopted mom and, and, uh, you know, uh, she sounds like a, a wonderful person who came into your life and, and, and started to show you compassion and love and, and, and show you your value, you know, directly and indirectly early on and, and, and give you a chance to dream and believe in yourself. So, yeah, thank you. I'm sure, I'm sure Martha is equally as proud as well of you and the person you've become. Um, so your mother was at the beginning and early years. Uh, Martha was another adult in, in your life. Um, and I'm sure there's a few other folks along the way. I, I don't know, a PE teacher or a math teacher or, or somebody else who's just an adult outside your household who was instrumental. Are there some names of that kind? <laughs> yeah, so... so um one of the people that definitely, uh, you know, believed in me, uh, quite a bit was, uh, you know, I took judo when I was uh, quite young. And so my sensei, my sensei and my, and my, and my, uh, um, you know, judo place, you know, he, he believed in me. So that was, that was also a vote of confidence, but in between then and, uh, graduating from high school, man, 
so in between the ages of like seven and high school, I moved to Venezuela when I was seven and I, and I, and I pretty much stayed, uh, stayed there mo- mostly until I graduated high school. Um, I can't really come up with a single name of, of anybody who was really helpful. In fact, it was mostly people who were, who were, who were, uh, you know, people that were like, you know, this, this isn't for me or, or more, 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 uh, speaking a bit detrimental, uh, to me. But, but once I left high school, I came back to the United States and I enlisted in the U S military in the air force specifically. And I was a, I was a, I was a policeman. I was a security policeman in the air force guarding nuclear missiles in Montana for four years. And then, then I had, you know, one of my supervisors, Kevin Camper, uh, you know, Kevin Camper was, um, a strong believer in me, in my capabilities. Uh, you know, he's one of the people that told me, you know, let no one's opinion become your reality kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, uh, echoes within me to this day. It's like, uh, cause lots of people like to tell you what your reality should be. There's no reason you should accept that. You know, you should only, you should only accept the opinion that you want. Um, and so that was, um, that was something that, that stayed with me. Fantastic. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people who like to brag and say, uh, I'm a self-made this and I'm a self-made that, um, you know, self-made millionaire. But the reality is, regardless of where you start, no one makes it alone. Um, everybody oh, yeah. needs a champion. And, uh, all of, and that's the whole point for this show, really, to kind of give... Uh, some gratitude to right. all these people along the way uh, that normally we don't uh, thank enough. Um, so I can tell you about those people, actually. Yes, that, yes. That, yeah. Uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, you went to the Air Force and, uh, and, and you went and, and you, you know, went to engineering school and now you're a professor and you're also providing shoulders to other people to stand on in your lab. Uh, so there's a lot of people along the way. So yeah. Any names that continue? Yeah. To yeah. So, mind? so let me put it this way. So when I went to, uh, Embry-Riddle, um, aeronautical university in Arizona, I just, I couldn't, uh, flip the bill. So I had to work and all these other things. And one of the jobs that I had, was as a tour guide at the admissions um, department. And there's a tour that I gave to this gentleman and his daughter from New Mexico. His, this guy's name was Mick Trujillo. And apparently I, uh, I, uh, I, impressed, I impressed him during the tour. And he said, you know what, young man? I believe that there is a spot for you uh, in New Mexico for an internship if, if if you're willing to strap that on and really, really get your hands dirty and that sort of stuff. I said, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I, I just wanted opportunities, man. You know, I just wanted, I, I have never said no. I have never said no to, to a challenge kind of thing, right. An opportunity. And so, you know, Mick Trujillo gave me this opportunity and this turned out to be a, a, a game changer for me because it was uh, an internship at the Los Alamos national laboratory pretty much where Oppenheimer, uh, you know, the Manhattan project, uh, you know, uh, uh, nuclear, nuclear, uh, uh, capabilities, all these things, uh, you know, were developed at Los Alamos. Mm. Um, you know, Einstein was there for some time and it's like, wow, like I get to work at a place that has had such a historical significance and with top scientists and engineers from the, you know, from around the globe, um, so that 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 exposure really shifted 
my, my confidence and, 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 and some of my abilities, uh, uh, innate abilities to, to, to do some science and engineering and some research, um, that's where I learned how to do some of that stuff. And the interesting thing is that, you know, there's a professor at Embry-Riddle. His name is Ron Madler. Hmm. And uh, he believed in me as well. And he had worked for NASA uh, before becoming a professor. And he basically showed me that it was possible for me to be uh, somebody who worked at NASA too. Like I never thought in a million years, somebody like me would end up being able to have a job at NASA doing orbital mechanics and stuff. But but he uh, helped me believe in myself, and and I ended up, uh, yeah, go- going to the same graduate school he went to in, in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the late my advisor, the late George Bourne, he saw me at a conference doing some research that I was doing with Ron Madler for a NASA space grant, and uh, I impressed I impressed George Bourne, and George Bourne said, "I want you to be my grad student. I want you to come to Colorado." Um, you know. I was never a great test taker, so my GRE scores weren't that great. My GPA coming out of undergrad was not in the top echelon considered good for, for graduate school uh, uh, type stuff. But he's like, listen, um, prove yourself. Mm. Prove yourself, not to me, prove yourself to yourself. And he gave me this chance, man. And, and I made the best out of it to the point where, uh, you know, that was the thing that uh, helped me get a job at NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I was able to navigate a handful of uh, missions to Mars as a consequence of, of that finished getting my PhD. Like that really opened up the doors to the rest of my, my, my adulthood, my career. And, and, and for folks who are listening, the whole idea here is to kind of like see how many linkages that have to happen for someone and a lot of hard work (laughs) that has to happen for someone to, go from point A to point B. And, um, you know, here you are, um, you know, man of color, at a professor at a prestigious university. Um, and, you know, it, it, it just doesn't happen overnight, but just sometimes you see someone is a doctor or someone is a, is a lawyer or someone is doing X, Y, and Z. And it's and you don't get to hear these like nuanced stories of how they happen to be. So thank you. Thank you for sharing those stories. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, so what are some more short, digestible, memorable quotes that people have told you along the way that you kind of that inspire you to this day? One of the things that, you know, sticks with me is aside from the, you know, let nobody's opinion become your reality. Um, and I don't know how I came to this, but it, but it's, it's something that echoes within me is uh, courage is the absence of paralysis in the presence of fear. Mm. And um, that to me is one that uh, is pervasive because, you know, I, I, I suffer from anxiety. I used to suffer from panic attacks uh, um, and um, I'm not fearless. So I'm not a fearless person. I, I actually, you know, get intimidated. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scared to do lots of stuff, but I don't let it prevent me or stop me. I keep, I keep in motion. And so, so to me, I love that concept of courage, courage being the absence of paralysis and the presence of fear. So that's probably a big one for me. Awesome. Courage is the absence of paralysis in the presence 
of fear. Thank you. Thank you. That's a, that's a wonderful mantra to live by. Um, so any books that you gift the most or any specific book that has spoken to you? I, um, <laughs> so, so whenever I read, it tends to be, you know, research papers, that sort of stuff to keep current and, and see where I need to go to with stuff. But I can tell you that I really enjoy anything by Casey Korzakov. She is the, um, I think, chief decision officer at Google. And um, uh, I enjoy uh, pretty much anything uh, that, that, that she writes and, and all that. So um, I've taken, taken a lot of stock uh, in her stuff. Aside from that, the things that I tend to read tend to be very much about, um, you know, spirituality, uh, different religions, because I'm trying to, ultimately, I'm trying to connect to people. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how people connect to stuff beyond what they see in the mirror uh, is critical. And so, and so in trying to understand humanity better, um, I've taken it upon myself since the age of probably around 16 to pretty much um, read, familiarize myself, digest a lot of uh, religious and spiritual texts from around the globe um, just to try to understand even myself better. Mm-hmm. So here you are. You are uh, clearly very successful from the outside for sure. But of course, uh, like you and I, you're always uh, self-aware uh, and trying to better yourself as you move forward. Uh, um, so I'm sure from the inside, you're like, yeah, I need to do more. But from the outside, we admire. So, uh, you know, congratulations how, you know, where you are now. But someone can look from the outside and say, hmm, everything seems to be going great for that specific person. So basically someone's outside uh, appearing great. And yet for you, you feel like your inside is not doing great. Um, are there some crucible moments in your life that you're comfortable sharing with our audience uh, or hardships uh, that you've had to navigate and, and how did you get through? Yeah. So, um, thanks for that question. I would say that one of the biggest ones happened when I was in military school, um, I was, uh, dealing with some lower classmen and I stood them at, at, at attention for uh, a very long time. And one of them happened to be the son of an officer that was colleagues with my director. And, um, anyway, long story short is, you know, this was a boarding school and I got, uh, I got sanctioned where I couldn't leave the school for, um, three months. And on weekends, uh, I'd be locked up in a room, uh, pretty much just, uh, you know, the door open to let me eat that sort of stuff. And uh, I became very depressed and I didn't want to live anymore. Mm. And, um, um, anything that I seemed to care about was kind of take taken away from me. Um, you know, my mom would come on Fridays to see me across a fence and, uh, I'd have upperclassmen and officers whispering in my ear that, uh, um, you know, how did it feel to not be able to be with my mother? And it was just, it was hazing. It was crazy, crazy stuff. And, um, 
all sorts of weird stuff, man, that, that, um, um, you know, the listeners would probably be, be very appalled to even hear people being subjected to these things. And in this space where I didn't want to live anymore, man. Um, and, and I felt completely stripped from anything that I cared about. I found that I was at a fork. There were two paths. I could, I could, the easiest one was, uh, for me to just succumb to my emotions and just, I could, it was easy for me to be angry. I had a lot to be angry about and I could just lash out. I could lash out, uh, with violence and, and, and anger and all these things. I'd been shown what that looks like and that was easy. Or I could choose a path that was founded in compassion. And the thing is, man, in the space of nothingness, in the space of nothingness, I found an ocean of peace and love that was shocking to me, surprising. Mm -hmm. Uh, I never imagined that that would be possible. And from that moment at 16, I felt that I was on a definite path to be of service to others. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be a vehicle to be of service. I wanted for other people to benefit from my pain. That's a good way to say it. Mm -hmm. I wanted other people to benefit from my pain. And interestingly enough, you know, back to this, uh, let no person's opinion become your reality. When I was in the military years later, I decided to, to get out after my four years, my commander, uh, at the time, he wanted me to sign my reenlistment papers. And I said, no. And he said that, uh, to mark his words that I would amount to nothing. And I would be living in a cardboard box under a bridge if I left. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, during this time that, uh, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm out of the military. I had lots of debt. I was working two jobs, man, 16 hours a day, except for Sundays, I wasn't able to make ends meet. It got to the point, Chris, where for several months, I ate from a dumpster. So I was becoming wow. that. And so the thing is, it's like, uh, you know, going in the back of a movie theater, uh, eating out of that dumpster um, for several months. I got to the point again where, where I was feeling I was in this place where I was stripped away from anything. And I, and I've, and I remembered that pool, that ocean of love. I found that again, and it became like the second epiphany kind of thing in my life. And, uh, you know, two, two points, you, you know, you need two points to draw a line through that. And um, that was the thing that really did it. Those two instances in my life were, were big lows. Um, and I think those really set me on my uh, trajectory. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, it's incredible to, it's just wild to, to think about what human beings are capable of doing to other human beings in terms of uh, inflicting pain. Uh, it's, it's just awful. Uh, I'm glad you are here and you're able to power through and use that energy to making the world a better place. Um, so, we are going through an interesting season right now, um, to say the least. Um, what does uh, being human in the new desirable world look like to you? I um, so 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 
one of the things that, um, even though my work is in orbits and space and all that, really it's, uh, you know, space is a way for us to know more about us, Mm. you know, humanity. Mm. And um, one of the things that's common to all people is our sky. And so, you know, for for me, uh, I'm very much moved by indigenous cultures, especially those that have found ways of being sustainable for tens of thousands of years. And when I look at, you know, kind of the principles that they live by, one of the things that I find uh, that I resonate with is this concept of um, we all come, you know, we all come from one source. Uh, It's a common fabric to all things. Everything is interrelated or interconnected. Mm. And so I, you know, my idea of, being a human now and what a human is in this next phase of humanity is to honor and respect our interconnectedness, our interrelatedness, Mm. Um, realize that we're more similar than we are different, but the cultural differences are ones that should be respected and and even celebrated. Um, It's, it's magical uh, in a sense. And that, um, you know, right before, I believe that free will is not in necessarily choosing our experiences, but in choosing how we respond to any experience. And so I try to keep that interconnectedness, um, you know, and interrelatedness uh, present. And at the same time, it's like, is there a way that I can behave from a place of compassion? Can I act from a place uh of compassion. And I also ask myself, am I being a good custodian and a good steward of, you know, everything else around me? You know, I, I, I have three children, uh, you know, an 18 year old, a, a 15 year old and, and an almost four year old. Mm. And I, I've told my kids, there's only two things that I request of you, you know, in, in life. One is that you not be a parasite to the world that you actually make a positive contribution to humanity. I don't care what that is, but, 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 uh, make a contribution to humanity. And the second one is I want you to do something that makes you happy, but this happiness cannot come as a consequence of the misery of others. Mm. Those are, Mm. those are my two things. And so that's my vision for the next phase of humanity and everything going on now is with this, with, uh, what's going on in the globe, it, you know, being closer to to family and these sorts of things to some extent is is be more reflective. Be have uh, you know the theme of 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 this um, you know of this program that you have is gratitude. Uh, try to live uh, more conscientiously in that space of gratitude. Honor and respect this interconnectedness amongst all things, and choose to act uh, and respond to experiences from a place of compassion. Amen. <laughs> I cannot add a thing to that. Um, what do you value the most in this life? I think, um, I think my connections, my connections to people uh, and, and certain places. And I, um, you know, some people want to be well, you know, what's my legacy? I want to be remembered in history, these sorts of things. Um, I, I feel less attached to that and more about 
did I leave this place a better place? Was I able to answer this inner clarion call to be of, of service to humanity? And, and was, was I able to achieve that? Was this ideal, this ideal of interconnectedness and compassion, was I able to serve that ideal uh, in, a, in, a, in a meaningful way, in a measurable way? Mm. Um, I think that's what I value probably the most. Connection, connection, connection. Awesome. So, I, I mean, we can, you and I can go on and on and talk. This, uh, this has been an amazing conversation. Thanks for your words of wisdom and, and sharing with, with, with me and, and our audience. Um, so we've come to the end of our conversation. And uh, do you have anything exciting that's coming up that you'd like to share with the audience you know books or uh, research or any work that uh, you you got coming up <laughs> yeah no chris so i i just before I even say that i just want to say thanks again for having me uh likewise it's been a great conversation um i think everything that i've said is is kind of captured in my work um you know one place that people can check out is eyesonthesky.org mm-hmm. all one word eyesonthesky.org and so it's just i'm trying to develop this kind of global movement of focusing us on this common common thing to all of us which is our sky and using that as a basis to really underscore this interconnectedness and this compassion fantastic um and any uh, social media handles, websites, or your personal otherwise that people should check out. So eyes on 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 the sky dot com. That org. That org. That's yeah. one website. Any other yeah. uh, social handles? Yeah. So I would say everything. Uh, pretty much anything about me is on uh, flow dot page uh, forward slash moriba. So so my name M O R I B A. So flow dot page forward slash moriba and everything's there awesome so i will make sure that we have uh um uh, some of these links in the in the text for the podcast as it comes out uh i really once again want to thank you for making the time to come and be part of this conversation and uh thanks for sharing your wisdom with us oh thank you chris it was uh my pleasure and an honor thank you The question to you, our listeners, is this. Whose shoulders do you stand on? Please give us a call. Share with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And my team will select one person's story each week to add to the episode. Special thanks to our producers, Isaac Silk and Jen Batty the people behind the scenes making this show possible. Immense gratitude goes out to my grandmother, Elnor. She is deaf and mute. We'll never get a chance to hear this, but she is my hero. Kara Adams, Ben Isoke, Michael and Martha Helms. These are the people whose shoulders I stand on. And always remember, happiness depends on gratitude. See you next week.